I want to start this morning by taking us on a quick tour of history. And I know some of you might immediately glaze over at that thought, but my degree was in history, so you're just going to have to bear with me if you hate history or hated history. We won't spend too long on it, but I want to touch on some of a few of the most famous empires in human history. Uh, Not Life in Your Church. So we're going to look at a few, and I picked these at random, but I just wanted to touch on a few. So the first one I read about was the Mongol Empire, which was in the 13th and 14th centuries, and it stretched from Japan, the Sea of Japan, all the way to Eastern Europe and up to the Arctic, and Genghis Khan is uh, one of the most famous leaders. I read that, this is quite awful, that Genghis Khan was responsible for the death of so many people that they estimate the temperature of the world actually changed, that he reversed a small amount of climate change because forests regrew where people had previously lived. Astonishing. Um, There was the Russian Empire, which extended across Eurasia from the early 1700s to the 1900s, third largest ever empire. There was the Roman Empire, which we often encounter in the New Testament, which stretched across Europe, Africa, Asia. There was the Qing Dynasty. I think the dynasty just makes it sound slightly cooler. Uh, And that was China and Inner Asia. And then, of course, there was the British Empire, which is said to have been the largest empire, 24% of the earth, uh, 400 million people. And sadly, a big part of empire was also death and, and oppression. And this list of empires goes on and on, so many empires across time, uh, and they sort of represent mankind's attempts to make something of themselves, to gain power and influence, to control to get profit, resources. And I can imagine having lived through any of these empires at their peak, just an ordinary person, it would have been so easy to think, how will this ever change? How will this empire ever collapse? How will uh, we be free from this? How will it come to an end? They were so powerful, so all-consuming. And we don't really have empires so much Uh, these days in the classical sense, but still there's certain big countries that have extreme economic and uh, socio-political influence. The last century was said to be the American century because America has been so dominant in culture, society, Hollywood, uh, and now we see the rise of China and India. And so in 2100, we might look back and say this was the Chinese century. Mankind's quest for influence and power is never-ending. We read that throughout the Bible, the Tower of Babel. There's so many examples of man trying to make something of themselves. Just this week in Britain, we uh, have had another week of uh, chaos politically, and who knows what's going to come out of it. And amongst it all, it's so easy for us to feel helpless, for us to feel like we're just being tossed around by the waves of politics and uh, economics, But I want to say this to you today. You show me an empire. You show me a leader with power. You show me a country with a large military, a CEO of a multi-billion dollar corporation. You show me warring nations, power-hungry leaders. You show me man's best attempts to shape history. And I want to say this. They are not even a footstool under the feet of the all-supreme, meteoric, astronomic, titanic largeness of Jesus Christ. Give me an amen. Thank you, yeah. I was hoping you'd say amen there. (laughs) 
Psalm 37 says this, fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like grass and wither like the green herb. These empires of man are a breath of wind or like grass in the air. And despite knowing that, as I said, it's so easy for us to look at everything that's going on in our world. And it feels like a hurricane where we're just spinning around. You think of all the things we've gone through in the last few years, the pandemic, before that Brexit, before that something else, before that something else. There's always something new each day on the news that just, just gets at our heart. And we, we feel like we've got peace. And then we wake up and something else happens. And there's another uh, thing in the news. And we feel like we're not in control. And that leads us to ask questions like, God, are you in control? Because I'm not in control. Are you in control? God, are you actually working things all, all, working all things together for the good who love you? Are you actually doing that? Are you bigger than these things? Gosh, we may never face a bigger thing than a global pandemic in our lifetimes again. And it would have been very natural for all of us to ask that question. God, are you bigger than this? And again, I'm here to tell you this morning that he is in control. And in fact, all things in heaven and on earth hold their very being in him. And that when we feel overwhelmed, we need to come again to his word and remind ourselves of who is actually pulling the strings in history. It's not Putin. It's not China. It's not the USA. Certainly not Boris Johnson. It's not all the companies in Silicon Valley that know everything about you and have all your data. It's not the stock market. It's not the banks. It's not the trustees of life in your church. It's Jesus Christ. He is pulling the strings of history. And as Caroline said, we're starting a new series today where we're going to open up the book of Colossians, which is a letter that uh, the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Colossae. And as we begin in chapter 1, we're going to come to one of the most wonderful sections of Scripture I know of. I don't know if there's a more magisterial depiction of Jesus in all the Bible. We're going to read it. It's a real treat for us because we're going to look at the cosmic reign of Christ over all creation and his reign over the church as well. I expect you all have films that you watch, you come back to maybe because they're comforting to you. Uh, I won't ask you to name them in case it's embarrassing or maybe a song you listen to. Well, this for me and I would hope for you should be one of those passages you come back to in Scripture again and again. It's that wonderful. Someone once said that if you, need, if you want to make a rabbit stew, first catch the rabbit. And in other words, first things first. And this passage tells us that, to put the first thing first. Essentially, it says this, without Christ, nothing else matters. Christ must be first in every area of our lives. So I'm going to read it to us. If you have a Bible, you could turn to Colossians 1. The words will also uh, come up on the screen. And then I'll draw a few points out for us. So we're starting in verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. 
For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Wow. We believe the whole of Scripture is God-breathed and it was inspired by the Holy Spirit, but I just feel like the Holy Spirit woke up and he was on, he was on fire when he wrote that through, through the Apostle Paul. He was really going for it. Maybe he'd had a, an espresso. I mean, what a passage. It's brilliant. And the whole structure of this passage is intentionally designed to highlight Christ's power. You can't miss it, can you? And his preeminence. And what that word means is above all others. And the Greek word that Paul uses for preeminence doesn't appear anywhere else in the Bible. This is the only place you'll find it. So Paul's, he's so like desperate to emphasize the preeminence of Christ, he's just made a word up or just formed a new word because he couldn't find one that was big enough. Christ is meant to be first, the first in all areas. And it's helpful to break this passage down a little because Paul's actually structured it in a certain way and it's called a chiastic structure and you find that structure across the Bible. When you read a parable of Jesus, he so often used this where the center of the parable would be the main point. And so you can actually do this when you read the Bible. You can just write out the lines and work it out. So it'll come up on the screen here and so there's like a mirror from the start and the end. So it says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. And that's mirrored at the end by saying he's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. So Christ is the firstborn over creation and the dead. We then move slightly more into the center. He is before all things. And then we're also told he's the head of the church as well. And then in the center we have this. In him all things hold together. In him all things hold together. That is the basis from which we should live our lives. When Christ comes again, and if someone tries to write a book about the history of the world, that could be the subtitle, or whatever it is, that could be the title. In him, all things hold together. Jesus is the centerpiece of history. And this passage takes us on a little bit of a journey through some of those things. So we're going to dive through some of them quickly. So firstly, it tells us that Jesus is the head of creation. So Jesus is the revelation of God And he possesses ultimate authority as the Lord of creation. He's the firstborn, the divine authority. And firstborn doesn't describe the order in which he was born. I recently heard John Paul, who's one of the community pastors here, he gave a helpful analogy when he said, the first lady of America doesn't mean she's the oldest lady or she was the firstborn. It's her position of importance, preeminence. And it's the same for Jesus. He is the firstborn, the most important. He's the head of creation, the CEO of all things. So he's the head of creation. Secondly, he's the source of creation. So Paul emphasizes Christ's role as the agent by which all things exist. For by him, all things were created. By him. He was the reason. 
He was the source of all creation. In the Gospel of John, we read that the Word was there at the beginning and through the Word all things were created. So if you imagine God the Father as the divine architect, then God the Son is the causal agent that brings it all to life. He reigns over everything. He's the head of creation and he's the source of creation. Is it any surprise then when Jesus was walking the earth, he could heal people or he could command storms to be still or tell demons to be quiet or raise the dead? No, because he is the head and the source of all creation. Thirdly, Jesus is the aim of creation. The aim of creations. He says this, all things were made through him and for him. All things were made through him and for him. Jesus is the aim of creation. He's the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. All things were created to find their fulfillment in Jesus. And that includes you. You were made to find your fulfillment in Jesus. Ephesians 1 says that all things will be united in Jesus. Ephesians 4 tells us that Jesus is filling the entire universe with himself. That sort of sounds painful, but it's not. It's amazing. Jesus is filling the whole universe with himself. Incredible. So Jesus is the head of creation, the source of creation, and the aim of creation. But yeah, gosh, Paul wasn't done. He took his second sip of coffee, and then he went on to tell us this, that Jesus is the head of the church. Jesus is the head of the church. So having established Jesus' supremacy over creation, physical creation, Paul then addresses the spiritual creation of the church. Do you ever find your eyes are drawn to the latest preacher who's famous or the latest worship leader or the church that does really snazzy social media or those worship moments on YouTube that were perfect and they'd practiced 500 times before they filmed it, but it looked spontaneous. So do you ever find yourself being influenced by these things and you think, gosh, I wish my life was like that. I wish our church was like that. Christ is the head of the church. Christ is the head of the church and so we need to have our eyes on Christ, not fads, not social media, not what we're told is popular. Those things can be good and useful, but Christ is the head of the church. And do you ever find yourself doubting the church when the latest celebrity pastor falls or the latest scandal hits or someone you know in the church acted like a bit of an idiot towards you? Do you find yourself doubting the church? Turn your eyes back to Jesus. He's the head of the church. It's his creation, his idea. Jesus is the head of the church. And secondly, he's the source of the church. He's the source of the church. His role in creation has been set out before us and so too has his position in the church been set out because we are his body and we've been purchased at a price by his blood. He birthed the church. He's the source. And that is why now we can continue his work of discipleship, reconciliation, healing the sick, breaking chains, fighting poverty, changing communities. We can do that only because Jesus is our source. Without him, the church would have died a long time ago. It would have died a long time ago. Without him, the church might have died in the pandemic. It would, gosh, it was hard. But Jesus is our source. And so we are hooked up to eternal life and all the power in heaven on earth. And lastly, he is the aim of the church. 
Paul was clever how he mirrored this, very clever. He's the aim of the church. Our eyes must be fixed on him, not the rulers and the authorities or the thrones or dominions that Paul talks about. Jesus is our aim, our goal, our guiding light. And whenever we take our eyes off Jesus, whenever the church takes its eyes off Jesus, we get into trouble. We get into trouble and we have to stay connected to him. So he's the head of creation and the church. He's the source of creation and the church. And he's the aim of creation and the church. So what should our response be? What should our response be? A shrug. Thanks, Jesus. That's nice, but you know, I'm quite busy. No, our our response should be obedience. Say, Jesus, have your way in my life. Take your proper place in my life. You are head of creation. You're head of the church. Come and be head of me. Come and be head of my life. Take authority over me. And Paul doesn't stop there because there's two more things that I want to highlight to us. Because the final act of Christ's supremacy that Paul identifies is his work of redemption for us, his people. And what he did on the cross. Because as part of his redemptive work, Paul says that Christ revealed the Father to us. Christ revealed the Father to us. Christ was incarnated. He came to earth. And Paul says this, for in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in a man who had hair and he breathed and he wore clothes and he walked among us and he laughed among us and he cried among us and he slept and he ate and he probably told jokes, messed around, wound people up, had friends, had enemies. And that was all the fullness of God. And not only that, God was pleased to do it. He hadn't been forced. He didn't do it begrudgingly. He was pleased to dwell in the man of Jesus so we could meet him and become united with him. And it's not a partial revelation. It's not a hint, not a shadow. All the fullness of God. Can you think how big God is? And all of it was in Jesus. And we don't have to make up what that means. We can read about Jesus in the Bible, what he was like. And every time you read about Jesus, remind yourself, this is all the fullness of God that I am reading about right now. This is what the Father's like. This is what the Father's like because Jesus is the full and final revelation of the Father. Amazing. The Old Testament, before we even get to the New Testament, the Old Testament is full of literally hundreds of prophecies about Jesus. It all points to Jesus. In Isaiah 42, Eugene Peterson, in the message, wrote this. He translated it like this. And this is about Jesus, written so long before he was even on earth. Take a good look at my servant. I'm backing him to the hilt. He's the one I chose, and I couldn't be more pleased with him. I've bathed him with my spirit, my life. He'll set everything right among the nations. He won't call attention to what he does with loud speeches or parades, He won't brush aside the bruised and the hurt, and he won't disregard the small and insignificant, but he'll steadily and firmly set things right. He won't tire, and he won't quit. He won't be stopped until he's finished his work, 
to set things right on earth. That is Jesus. And if you're feeling bruised or brushed aside this morning, if you're feeling insignificant or small, Jesus won't brush you aside. Jesus won't brush you aside. Jesus is here to meet with you and to reveal to you the Father. So Jesus reveals the Father to us. And lastly, he reconciles the Father to us. Because he not only shows us what God is like, he invites us into relationship with the Father. He reconciled everything by making peace by the blood of his cross. And you know, reconciliation is only needed when things have become broken and fractured. If everything had been hunky-dory with us and God, then there would have been no need for reconciliation. But reconciliation was needed because of the brokenness of sin in our hearts. But through Jesus, all things are being reconciled. And that includes your life and my life. It includes your mess and my mess. It includes the darkest parts of our heart that haunt us, the worries that nag us, those things in our past that try and bind us. All things are being reconciled by Jesus. And that is the invitation we have. Romans 5 says this, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace with God. What a glorious thing. Through him, we have also gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. So because of Jesus, we are made holy and we are justified. When he died on the cross, the Bible says that we received his righteousness. The posh word is imputed. We received the righteousness of Christ. Imagine a bank transfer. He transferred it from his account. We had nothing. We'd maxed out our overdraft. And suddenly, our bank account has received the righteousness of Christ. And it's not because we did anything to deserve it. One of the biggest lies you can believe in the Christian life is, I have to live a moral life to receive the righteousness of Christ. That's what the Pharisees tried to do. No, you'd have to do nothing. There is nothing you can do to receive it. And there is also nothing you can do to unreceive it. The righteousness of Christ has been imputed upon you. So that means this, when God looks at you, he doesn't see you, he sees Christ. He sees the righteousness of Christ when he looks at you. And that was because he lived the perfect life that we should have lived. And then he went into the depths of hell so we wouldn't have to. And then he rose again by the power of the Spirit. And all we have to do is have faith in him. All we have to do is have faith and we can gain access to the Father. And this means you can come into God's presence with confidence, the Bible tells us. With confidence. Do you live your life like that? Do you live your life in the knowledge that you can come into the presence of God with confidence? Not sneaking in at the back. Not trying to fix things in your own strength first. I think sometimes we approach our walk with God like a, sort of, like a diet. You know, you think, oh, when I, when I get down to this weight, then, I, then I'll come into God's presence. And then, you know, it's someone's birthday, and you have a bit of cake, or someone's at work, and they've bought in some biscuits. And we're just constantly fighting against this never-ending tide of bad food. It's not the way. We can come into God's presence with confidence. 
You are justified because of Jesus, because of his position over creation and over the church. That is why we can have confidence in that, because of who he is and his position. So I'm going to read that passage in Colossians to us again. I'm going to read it from the message. And so just wherever you are now, I invite you just to focus on the Holy Spirit. You might want to close your eyes, just whatever helps you focus. And just receive these words over you as I read them. And then we're going to respond. We look at this sun and see the God who cannot be seen. We look at this sun and see God's original purpose in everything created. For everything, absolutely everything, above and below, visible and invisible, rank after rank of angels, everything got started in him and finds its purpose in him. He was there before any of it came into existence and holds it all together right up to this moment. And when it comes to the church, he organizes and holds it together like a head does a body. He was supreme in the beginning and leading the resurrection parade, he is supreme in the end. From beginning to end, he's there, towering far above everything, everyone. So spacious is he, so expansive, that everything of God finds its proper place in him without crowding. Not only that, but all the broken and dislocated pieces of the universe People and things, animals and atoms get properly fixed and fit together in vibrant harmonies, all because of his death, his blood that poured down from the cross. You yourselves are a case study of what he does. At one time, you all had your backs turned to God, thinking rebellious thoughts of him, giving him trouble every chance you got. But now, by giving himself completely at the cross, dying for you, Christ brought you over to God's side and put your lives together, whole and holy in his presence. You don't walk away from a gift like that.